So uh, we're going to hop in here. Hop on in. We are in a series called Worship 123. <laughs> That's the bumper video. <laughs> no, we don't need the bumper video. I'm here. I am the bumper. Huh? What? No. No, you can just click the PowerPoint. Yes. Thank you. No. Um, hey, everyone give our little production team back there, Davis, Wenton, Cameron, and Wenton, a round of applause. All right, so we are in a uh, series called Worship 123. If you've been here, you've heard me explain what that means several, several times. And if you're sick of hearing it, it's also because I'm, I'm somewhat sick of saying it. But it's a good reminder. Uh, worship, we define that as... The sincere satisfaction in God that displays his worth. When we talk about Christian worship, that's what we're talking about. So with this series, we've sought to show how that's not just something that happens here. It's not something that's simply directed to God or, or whatnot. There are some three clarifications we make. And that's that one object uh, of worship is, our, we have one object of worship and that's God. He alone is worthy of our worship. He's truly worthy of our worship. There's two contexts to worship, uh, gathered and scattered. We're finishing up scattered tonight. And there's also three audiences. So that's where the name Worship 123 comes from. So the rest of our Sunday nights will be spent on those three audiences of worship. Uh, and then we'll wrap things up on May 6th. So tonight we are in the second half of scattered worship. Last week, we opened up this whole idea that Jesus breaks the limitations of our worship. He was at the, at the well with a Samaritan woman, and he's explaining to her that um, worship is no longer confined to a specific, specific location or to a specific people group, but Jesus is changing the way we worship, and that worship is now done in the spirit and in truth. So we talked about some of those things and basically seeing that Jesus made it possible for us to worship in a scattered context. So we, we explored this whole idea that Jesus sent the Spirit into us so that we could be temples. So instead of just going to one temple, Jesus made it so that we ourselves are temples, that Christians are actual temples of God. Now, now, what is a temple? What is a temple? We use that word, but what do we really mean by that? We don't have really temples today unless you've been uh, part of a Jewish family or something. You go to synagogue or call it temple. Um, but for Israel, the temple was a sacred space that housed God's presence. They believed that God literally was present in this temple. That was a big deal for them. The temple was a huge deal. It's where God's presence was. So Jesus unleashed it, unleashed worship to happen, not only in that temple, but he made us temples. So this is what Paul says. He says, do you not know, he's talking to Christians here, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Some basic things I want to note here about being temples of God. One, God's spirit dwells in us. 
That's what it means that we are the temples of God. That we are God's temple basically means God dwells in us. God's spirit dwells in us. It's a crazy concept, one that we probably don't give enough credit for. And then as you continue on in that verse, Paul claims that God's temple is holy. Holy. That, that's a key word there, holy. What does that word mean? Holiness is, is basically the idea of being set apart. Being set apart, being unique. When the Bible talks about God's holiness, it's talking about God is utterly unique. There's no one like God. And because of that, he is holy. And so when scripture speaks of God's holiness, it's that he is the only one who is capable of creating and, and judging and being righteous in the way that he is. Only God has the power that he has and in that he's holy. So we worship God because of that. And then in turn, he makes us holy as he is holy. It's, it's amazing. But we can add to our definition of a temple like this. A temple is a holy place that houses the presence of God. Well, that's what I want you to think of when you hear temple. A temple is a holy place that houses the presence of God. So as Christians, we are the holy houses of God. We don't have to go to a holy house. God instead comes to us and dwells us with his spirit through Jesus so that we could be his holy house. That we could have the presence of God wherever we go. Now, this isn't that shocking to us, right? We're kind of sitting here like, mm -hmm. yeah, get it. But this is utterly shocking to a Jewish context. Remember, they took the temple very seriously. They took God's presence very, very seriously. And there's a, an example of that that I want to kind of walk us through of taking God's presence, his holiness, his, his, um, his temple very seriously. I was just, I've been in the book of Samuel for a very long time, um, but I was just in this story of David. David gets anointed king, and um, one of the first things he wants to do is he wants to take the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, back to his city. Because um, earlier in Samuel, now let me back up. So the Ark of the Covenant, you guys know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Everyone's seen Indiana Jones? No? Do you guys know the story of Indiana Jones? Thank you, Ben. <laughs> seen, do you guys, have you guys, no, seriously, this is a serious question. Have you seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? The Lost Ark. Ark. No? Wow. Okay. What do you mean the live action? At Disney? So you've been to Hollywood Studios? <laughs> Anyway, so in Indiana Jones, they're searching for the Ark of the Covenant. They're searching for what they're talking about in this passage. And uh, there's this crazy scene where the Nazis find it. And the guy looks upon the Ark of the Covenant and his face melts off. It's insane. But the whole idea is that the Ark is so holy. The Ark is so, like, sacred. You can't even look upon it. And, the, and although that's definitely a movie adaptation, adaptation like I don't think I can't say for certain but I don't think the Ark of the Covenant melted anyone's face off in real life but the Ark of the Covenant was the place 
was the central place where God's presence was. In the center of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, they would have the Ark of the Covenant, and it housed um, a few different things in the actual Ark or box, but also had the Ten Commandments in there. Um, But it was very, very serious to Israel's worship that the Ark of the Covenant was at the center. So David wants to bring that back to his city. Okay, everyone on the same page? Ark, very important. David wants to get it back. Check. Good, you're tracking. Okay, so in 2 Samuel, this is what we see. David, he gathers all of his chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the Cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart, upgrade, new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving this new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. So David goes to this guy's house named Abinadab. Abinadab had the Ark after a long series of unfortunate events happened at the beginning of Samuel. So Israel wants to go and win a battle. And so they want to defeat the Philistines. So what they do is like, let's just grab the ark and we'll bring the ark into battle. And that will like magically let us win. Bad idea. Because they take it, they get defeated, and the Philistines steal the ark. So they have the ark in their city and their whatever they would call it at that time. Well, just because God is awesome and like cool, he starts messing with all of their idols in the Philistine camp. He starts making it so, like, um, overnight, the idols would all be, like, bowing down to the ark when they woke up in the morning. And, like, all this cool stuff. And they're like, something's going on. And then God started making a plague happen to the Philistine camp where they would get all these tumors and, like, mice would be eating at their skin and stuff just because they had the ark. So the Philistines are like, get this thing out of here. Let's send this back to Israel. We don't want this ark. So um, they do that. They make um, this this, um, whole kind of treaty with the Israelites, and they decide to send it to this guy, Abinadab's house. So Abinadab has the ark for that reason. So that's why David goes and gets it from his house. So Abinadab has two sons named Uzzah and Ahio, and they are carrying the ark, Ahio out front and Uzzah in the back. So David and all the house of Israel, they're celebrating. They're pumped. They're jazzed. They're like, man, we're getting the ark back. This is huge. It's a big victory for them. They're celebrating before the Lord. They have songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. A full, full ensemble there. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, listen closely, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So don't miss what happens here. So on this cart, the oxen that's carrying the cart stumbles, and Uzzah's in the back. He's like, oh, no, i got to protect the ark from falling. And so he grabs hold of it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And Uzzah died there besides, beside the ark of the Lord. And, and this is interesting. David was angry. David sees what happened, he's angry. At the Lord. And then he named that place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So basically, the Lord kills Uzzah, who touches the ark, strikes him dead. Um, Uzzah may have 
probably had good intentions, right? He's trying to protect the ark, which he values from touching the ground. He's trying to, you know, uh, be a good guy for the most part, but he made a horrible error. What was his error? He touched it, and at the root of that is he didn't take God's holiness serious enough. He did not consider God's holiness as dangerous as it was. So, The great error here is not taking God's holiness seriously as symbolized in the ark. So imagine if you were a Jewish person, an Israelite who's carried on through this story, right? And you hear about God's holiness, right? You you hear about God's presence. You don't think of this warm, fuzzy feeling that happens when the song Holy Spirit comes on. You think about power. You think about killing people. Like, that's how they understood God's presence and his holiness. It wasn't some fluffy, cool, like, characteristic of Christianity. This was a serious, dangerous thing if it's not handled and taken seriously. God's holiness is like the sun. Sun is great when it's doing what it's supposed to do and we're we're treating it as it's supposed to be treated, right? We, We enjoy its benefits. But if you get too close to the sun and you're not treating the sun with with um, caution, you'll get burned immediately. And like, you know, whatever happens. But God's holiness is like that. God's holiness is dangerous. And that's how the Israelites understood it. And that we should take his, um, his holiness, his presence very, very seriously. So that's the backdrop for when Paul says, you are now the temple of God. The, the presence of God lives inside of you. That's crazy. Like, really, the the presence of God is living in me? Guys, we should be in shock of that. But it's how shocking it is. In the same motion, it shows how amazingly gracious God is being. God is not only empowering you with his spirit. He's being gracious for his presence to dwell inside us, broken, sinful people. It's only by the grace of Jesus that that powerful presence and that holiness gets to be housed in us. It's amazing. So now while, while that's shocking and it carries some serious consequences, there are implications for this. We shouldn't just be like, wow, that's a cool kind of concept. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price, therefore, so that you can glorify God in your body. God has taken up residence in you. He has claimed you as his holy house so that you know you're not your own. Your life's not about you. It's not about your plan. It's not about your will. not about your glory. It's about God's glory, his plan, his will. And so, because we are the temples of God, there are implications to how we should live our lives. The implications are that our temples, our bodies, how we live and what we do is for the glory of God. Because this isn't my temple. This is, I don't live to worship me. I live to the praise and to the glory of God. So since we are the temple of God, we should live all of our life as worship to God. Since we are the temple of God, we should live our life as worship I mean, we've said this over and over again, but you have to see that 
understanding we can worship outside this room and not go to our location, it's not simply a nice, cool thing. It has implications. It has consequences for how we should live our life. For how we should live our life. So um, this is how Jesus changed the way we worship. Instead of calling people to come to a temple, he became a temple and made his followers into temples by sending the Holy Spirit to live in them. If you are a Christian in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has given you, clothed you, outfitted you with his indwelling spirit so that you can be a temple for the purpose of glorifying him throughout the entire world. So what does this practically mean? What does this really mean? It's kind of a cool concept, but what is this, how does this relate to how I'm supposed to live in a way that displays God's word. How exactly does this idea of me being a temple work itself out in my day-to-day life? A lot of directions we can go with that, but there's one direction I want us to take, and it regards this imagery that scripture uses of the temple and rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. In John 7, 38, Jesus claimed, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What scripture is Jesus talking about there? Any idea? He's talking specifically, right? He's not talking specifically about any scripture. That's the point. There's not a scripture that says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. More so, he's taking this imagery that we get from a prophet called Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a crazy dude. Has anyone read the book of Ezekiel? My wife and Erica (laughs) and Levi. Okay, cool. Um, So Ezekiel was this dude. He would have some trippy visions. Okay? He would have some crazy visions, and um, it it would tell him to do some really crazy stuff. Um, I won't go into detail with all the stuff that he did, but um, he was a... It's a very powerful book. The first half emphasizes how Israel gets taken out into captivity um, concerning their idolatry and their injustice. But then the last half of the book talks about the hope that they have. So in the last section, about chapters 40 through 48, where this passage um, lies, Ezekiel's given a hopeful glimpse of how God's going to make all things new. He sees a vision that God will make his people new. There's a valley of dry bones He sees this vision, there's literally dry bones, dead people. He sees this wind come, and these bones start to get up, and they get flesh, and they they start to move, and they they live again. And God's giving Ezekiel this vision to say say that he's going to make his people new. And then he goes on to talk about how he'll ultimately crush evil. There's this crazy character that he creates, and he's got all this different kind of like weaponry and imagery that's used. And just over and over again, Ezekiel sees a vision of God crushing evil and defeating evil. And then we come to this passage in Ezekiel 47. Um, Ezekiel's there, and this guy, this kind of like heavenly tour guide, shows up in his vision to give him a, a tour of the new temple. And this is the tour that Ezekiel gets. The man, that's his tour guide, his heavenly tour guide said, so the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold 
of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. So there's this temple, and outside, from, from the gates, there's water flowing. Okay, that's what Ezekiel sees. And as the man went eastward, so they're walking, with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, so he turns to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, which was like a desert. He said it flows there and it goes down into the Areva, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. So in Ezekiel's vision, he sees this river basically form out of the new temple. And this river makes its way through dead and dry land, and it brings life. And Jesus says, remember, people who follow me, out of their hearts will flow rivers of life. Us being the new temple and this imagery that we see, what Jesus is saying is, you should be a vessel for new life to come about in your life. Wherever you are, in your world, you should bring newness. You should bring renewal. You should bring life, resurrection, that's what it means to be the temple of God. The temple of God means you're a source of living water that's flowing out from you and bringing life and newness. So my simple point is this. As, as Christians who are the temple of God, we should bring life and renewal to the world around us. Just like that river of water that Ezekiel saw in his vision we should be um, a source of, of life and of refreshment and, and resurrection in, in, the, in our lives, in the people around us, in our communities, in our schools. That's what it means to be the temple of God. This is what scattered worship is all about. Scattered worship is all about being the temple of God so that rivers of living water flow out from us to the people and places around us so that we're vessels of new life and resurrection. We should be fountainheads of renewal and resurrection. And by unleashing resurrection in the world, we glorify God with our bodies. By bringing people into an experience of resurrection, that's how we bring God the most glory. Just in the same, we, we mentioned at D-Now, Lazarus, the most glorious thing that could have happened to Lazarus was resurrection. The most glorious thing that could happen to your friend who's lost is resurrection. The most glorious thing that could happen to this community 
to our neighborhoods is that people experience the resurrection of God that's rooted in Jesus. That's what we should seek. That's what it means to seek God's glory, to see people raised to life in the name of Jesus. So how can you worship in the scattered context? Here here are three practical things. Be amazed and thankful that you are the temple of God. Be shocked. Don't sit idly by and think about you being the temple of God in a passive way. I promise you, you won't do any of the other practical things as it pertains to you being a temple of God who is supposed to bring resurrection. If you aren't amazed and shocked that God in his grace would call you out as a broken, sinful, fallen human being and take up residence in your life. So be wrecked by the gospel, seeing that Jesus has made you his home by his grace. And then from there, seek to do these other things. But you have to start here. If your heart truly doesn't delight in the fact that God has made you his home, I don't see how you'll do these other two things. Or to remind yourself daily that you are not your own. That's what Paul says. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your life should not be about you. Your life should not be about your agenda. Number three, identify how you can bring renewal to the world around you. This is what it's all about, guys. I'll just, I, I don't even have to preach this whole sermon This is what it's all about. If you want to be a Christian in this world, if I want to be a Christian in this world, this is what I'm called to do. This is who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be someone who brings renewal to the people around me. I'm supposed to be someone who brings resurrection to dead situations. I'm not supposed to simply join in with the gossip. I'm supposed to break the gossip and bring life to that conversation. I'm not supposed to simply join in in making fun of that guy, that girl. I'm supposed to break that and bring resurrection and life and renewal. I'm not supposed to simply live in a city that has more and more abortions each year. I'm supposed to break that and bring about renewal and resurrection. Guys, this is what we're about. This is what Jesus was about. And if we're not what Jesus is about, then what are we about? We're either about ourselves or we're about the gospel and Jesus, plain and simple. And, you know, we can dress up being about ourselves with churches, with services. But if we're not about Jesus, then this is, we'll just go home. Stop messing around. We have to be people who are vessels of renewal and resurrection. So let's ask ourselves. I want this to be super practical for us this week. Who are three people in my life that I can be a source of life and resurrection to this week? Who are three people that are close to me and far from God? Who are three people that I have influence over, that I have friendships with, maybe I'm in the same family with, that need life, renewal, and resurrection this week? And how can I do that? Because that's what it's about. Now, this isn't simply just buying someone a good meal or just 
being nice and saying a compliment, although it can start there, at least start there. This is about experience the resurrection of Jesus, God getting glory. Right? So don't mishear me and say, just do nice things for people. That's what we're supposed to do. No, I'm saying we need to bring the resurrection of Jesus to people, and that's the most good we could ever do. So guys, there are people in your life, in this room, who are broken, who are trying their best, who are suffocated by life, who are drowning in anxiety and worry, who feel like they're alone, who feel like that their situation is not going to get any better. And we should be a people who stand up and say, I'm going to bring renewal to this. I'm not going to let this whole routine of deadness, this whole routine of, uh, well, it's just really uncomfortable to kind of reach out and be a, a friend. It's kind of weird. No, if this is what your life is about, if this is what my life is about, then this is what we need to do. So I, I gave you guys each a card for you at your table. And on it, it says who, uh, three people I can bring renewal to this week. This is my commitment to you. I want you guys to take that card, write down those three names and your name. And I want you to put it in this box. And Stephanie and I, this week, we're going to pray for you and these three people to experience the renewal of Jesus this week. And we're going to pray hard. We want to see renewal and resurrection come. And I believe it will start when we start taking that seriously. And we're just going to show that we're taking it seriously by praying. I invite you guys to do that same thing. Three people in your life that need to experience renewal and resurrection. And um, write those down for yourself. Write those down so that you could pray for this person and that you can find opportunities to do that. But, but at least drop them in the, the bin so that Stephanie and I can pray for them this week. Guys, this is what we're about. If we are the temples of God, then we have been called to be a source of living water. We should be vessels for the greatest news there is, for the greatest power there is. So let's challenge one another to do that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we've got snacks. I think we do. Father, I thank you That in your grace, by your mercy, you have sought to take residence in us. That you've forgiven our sin. You've cleansed us through Jesus. So that you can dwell in us and empower us to be sources of life to other people. So God, we pray that by your spirit, by a mighty work of your hand, you would use students in this room, myself and the leaders in this room, to do that this week, to live like Jesus is on the throne of our hearts and he is the glory. It's his glory that we see.